Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Three months of protest haven't dislodged Sudan's Omar al-Bashir. The leader has been uh, in power since 1989, and the government crackdown that he's been leading and the opposition has been harsh. Sudan's doctor syndicate says that 57 people are dead, including three who died of torture. There's been a big crackdown on the media. We're going to talk about what's been happening in Sudan now with Sandra Hale. She's a professor emeritus at UCLA's Department of Anthropology. She's been visiting and researching Sudan for decades and publishes on social movements and identity politics in the country. Thanks for joining us, Sandra Hale. Thank you for inviting me. Also with me here in the studio is Kenneth Elisapana. He is the executive director of the Chicago-based NGO South Sudan Voices for Hope. He was born in South Sudan, and uh, I've talked with him over the years on our global activism segment, and it's good to see you again. And Nice to talk with you, Kenneth. Thanks for having me on, Jerome. I'm glad to do it. I wanted to um, ask you a question about the source and context here of the protest. It, it started as an economic protest in December over, over rising prices, the end of subsidies. Um, and everyone always said when South Sudan left uh, Sudan, there would be economic trouble for Sudan. The, the oil money would uh, kind of evaporate and, and things, would, things would be different. Um, is that what happened here? Well, that's a really uh, very good point that you uh, alerted, uh, Jerome. Uh, first of all, my uh, prayers and thoughts are with the Sudanese people during these difficult times, particularly the ones who lost their loved ones in this crisis. I am one of the few South Sudanese who actually lived in North Sudan. And uh, today I still have family members who live in Sudan. A lot of friends from the South Sudan as well as from the North Sudan who are still there. But yes, there are four factors, actually. Uh, Economy is one of them, and I'm going to, just for your listeners, highlight those uh, because it has built to this level that exploded, actually started in January of last year, but more so the recent uh, December 19th uh, and ongoing. Really, the first factor, really, that led to this crisis, outbursts of this crisis, is uh, Bashir's military takeover. You see, when Bashir first took over in June of 1989, uh, the movement was known as Sourat Ingaz Alwatan, literally translated uh, in English as National Salvation Revolution Council. The tenant of the coup was first to rid Sudan of the corruption in the Sudan under the Prime Minister Sadiq al-Mahdi and at the same time mismanagement of the economy of Sudan. And the second major issue was to bring the war in South Sudan to an end once and for all and to unite Sudan under one banner of uh, the equivalent of uh, Muslim Brotherhood 
that's the brand of uh, Islam that uh, Bashir and his team advocated in Sudan. So that's one factor. Now, what happened was the war was never ended quickly. And it stretched for a very long time, and that cost a lot of money to run the war until 2005. The peace was signed. So the economy of Sudan is, is largely driven into the military and has been for years. Absolutely, and that led us right to the second point, which is the economy. So you see, Sudan depends on the oil money from the Sudan and other natural resources. So in 2005, when the peace agreement was signed, six years was given opportunity for South Sudanese to decide if they wanted to have one Sudan. Sudan, uh, South Sudanese decided to divorce. So three quarters, to your point, three quarters of the economy was lost. And the economy in Sudan itself already stretched thin, not only lives lost from the north, but also the economy has been stretched really thin. So there was pressure that has already begun to build, and that leads us to the third point, which is the conflict in Darfur. So in 2003, the economy is in bad shape. The conflict in Darfur started, and that added additional pressure on the economy. More military hardware from Russia and China, and that continued as uh, uh, you know up to 2010. Bashir was indicted for. Uh, war crimes and crimes against humanity. And then many businesses decided not to come to the north to do business with Bashir. And then I have one final, if we want to take a break, I have one, one more point, which is the brand of Islam that Bashir has. So the uh, uh, Jabhat Islamia, which is like a Muslim brotherhood of Egypt, brought a lot of social tension. You see, when Bashir came to power, the idea was that we wanted to bring Sudan back to the Islamic uh, way of life. Uh, movies were stopped, uh, parties were stopped, all the musicians stopped making music, and there was dress codes for women in the universities and the workplace and on the streets. So all these pressures, nothing was invested in the economy, economic development, and the future of Sudan. And many of the young people who were born when Bashir came to power, now is almost 28, 29, they see there is no future in Sudan. And all these outbursts just came out is just like tip of iceberg. Kenneth Alisapana is executive director of South Sudan Voices of Hope. We're talking about the protests in Sudan that have been going for three months now against uh, Sudan's leader, Omar al-Bashir. And Sandra Hale is with us. She's professor emeritus at UCLA's Department of Anthropology and has uh, visited and researched in Sudan for decades. Uh, how, how do you reflect on uh, what Kenneth has said here and, and what do you see as going on right now in, in Sudan? Well, first of all, hello, Kenneth, and uh, it's good to interact with you. Um, mostly I agree with what Kenneth said. It was a very good overview, very well worked out. Um, I know that, generally speaking, although I've heard very different ideas about Jerome McDonald, very positive ideas, but generally speaking, journalists and, and, and media um, media celebrities and so on, uh, and this is public radio, so I shouldn't use the word celebrity, but uh, find academics to be too nuanced. 
So let me just uh, follow that stereotype <laughs> and nuance what Kenneth said just a little bit. One is that uh, there's too much uh, emphasis, I think, not just from Kenneth, but everyone, on the, uh, on the oil and on the missing oil. Um, there were many, many other economic factors uh, coming to bear. I mean, he, uh, Kenneth did mention that the war had really drained the, uh, the Treasury and so on. Uh, true, but also there are U.S. sanctions that have had some importance. The U.S.'s uh, involvement in, in Sudan is a, uh, a very interesting <laughs> behind-the-scenes involvement that's been going on for many, many years. Um, so the sanctions are, are, are a big uh, are a big issue. If not um, if not actually hurting the pocketbook, so to speak, of the population, which they are, um, still it's a, a political created a political quagmire. Well, let's so, let's talk a little about that because I know the Obama yeah, admin. Let me also add that it's not just the D- Darfur. Uh, conflict. It's also the Nuba Mountains. Mm-hmm. There are problems in the east. Uh, there are problems in other many other areas in Sudan, uh, all of which is draining the uh, the treasury to the point where, uh, at some point, the um, the foreign minister uh, was sacked because he said to Parliament, "There is no money in the country, <laughs> no hard currency at all." So that's that's a. Uh, <laughs> That's uh, rock a bottom when there is no currency in a country. Sorry, Jerome. And you fire somebody for saying it. Uh, no, that's very interesting. Now, I wanted to get into the sanctions element. I know the Obama administration was beginning to normalize relations and try to lift sanctions, but uh, there is a terrorism designation on Sudan, and that's a process that um, you know was moving forward apparently. And what was going on there, Sandra? Well, I'm not sure what was going on behind the scenes, so to speak, in, in Washington and with the the turnover of government. I mean, we can pretty much figure out that Trump's Islamophobia and general <laughs> anti-Arab stance uh, would have something to do with with uh, trying to keep the uh, sanctions in place. But it's very confusing because... The CIA has an office, actually has an office in Khartoum, which is pretty shocking to me, considering how CIA was always a bad word all these decades in Sudan, for good reason. Um, Anyway, the CIA has been working with the Sudanese government to try to stem the flow of um, terrorists and uh, people associated with terrorism, um, the flow across uh, the northern part of, of Sudan, so while these um, agreements have been, um, these negotiations have been a bit in the air, the sanctions remain almost suspended. I mean, some people say they've been removed. Others say, no, 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 they're still in place. Um, and people are working in both directions. I mean, there are many people who, um, such as the Enough Project, that really want the sanctions to remain until uh, the government uh, ceases its hostility towards Darfur in particular, but other areas as well, and stops violating human rights. But can we... Uh, th- so can, I don't know... Do you think the government is going to look at it now and say, well, we, you know, they're, the government's doing these things, they're shooting people in the streets, we can't lift the sanctions, we're, we're, this is going to, the whole process right. is going to stop, and that will accelerate pressure on Omar al-Bashir? 
Yes, and it has already. He has uh, at least verbally made concessions. Um, he has um, softened his uh, stance on the street in various ways uh, that are, you know, are inconsistent. By the way, he doesn't have complete control of what's happening in the streets because not only do we have the police and the military um, and maybe Russian mercenaries, there are rumors anyway, uh, but militias that the government has uh, built over the years uh, to handle uh, conflicts in some of the, quote, faraway places from the capital like Darfur that they were not able to handle. So they recruited uh, militias. So these militias are always ready but are not necessarily directly <laughs> under the control of the government. So Bashir is attempting to pull back some of this violence as nearly as I can tell from the information I have. Uh, but my, my position is that removing Bashir could almost be negative because the CIA has come out with a statement about who they, that they want Bashir removed, but then the person that they've suggested put in place of Bashir is actually even worse. Um, so I don't know what kind of game the U.S. is playing. Um, it, it's very hard. I, I certainly would not want to uh, to, to um, declare, uh, make any declarative statement about uh, the U.S. role in, in Sudan. It's been confusing for a long time. Uh, do, very shadowy. Do either of you think that he can, or Bashir can stick it out? I mean, he thought he was coup-proof and thinks he's coup-proof. And we've just got like a minute left here. Uh, Kenneth, do you think he can stick it out? Well, uh, Bashir uh, uh, is a survivor. He ruled Sudan as a strongman like uh, Hossein Mubarak of Egypt and Colonel Gaddafi of Libya. Now, he has some tricks that he can pull. One would be, as uh, Professor Sandro mentioned earlier, soften his stance and heed to the uh, uh, plight of the protesters and provide subsidies on the basic commodities in the Sudan. That would uh, calm the situation on the streets down, but uh, it's just to buy him time. The other thing he could do is, as uh, Professor Sandro alluded earlier, is to pull the plugs, uh, security forces to quench uh, the protesters on the streets, but that will uh, just buy him some time because the international pressure is growing. This is not movement of just the average Jews on the street. We are talking about doctors. We are talking about engineers. We are talking about professors at the university. So teachers. So that is a big movement. And they are looking at a huge structural change beyond Bashir. And I don't think they, this movement is looking at Bashir as a pilot to lead them to that uh, economic uh, development. Kenneth Elisapana is director, executive director of South Sudan Voices of Hope, an NGO based here in Chicago. And Sandra Hale is a professor emeritus at the UCLA Department of Anthropology. Thank you both for joining us and talking about the protests that have been happening in Sudan. Coming up after the break, we'll uh, have a segment where Christopher Kimball from America's uh, Test Kitchen talks about the globalization of cooking in our kitchens. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, and this is Worldview. Christopher Kimball may be best known for launching America's Test Kitchen and Cook's Illustrated magazine. But in recent years, he left those ventures to start a magazine called Milk Street Kitchen. Kimball was in Chicago recently to talk with WBEZ's Monica Eng in her own kitchen about his new book, Tuesday Nights, It Promises to Bring Easy Fast Meals to American Home Cooking Using Techniques from Around the World. Here's Monica Eng talking with Christopher Kimball. Uh, so tell me, what was the inspiration for Tuesday nights? The, the inspiration for Milk Street, which is related, was that if you go around the world, you're not going around the world to find, quote-unquote, ethnic recipes, a term I don't like at all. You're going around the world so people can teach you better ways of thinking about cooking and actually cooking. So it's less about a specific recipe, more about you know what is cooking. Um, and it turns out most of the people in the world, other than Northern Europe, have a very different idea or answer to the question, what is cooking? So Tuesday nights is to say, look, you know, most people in the world cook pretty quickly. Uh, Northern Europe was about low and slow and technique and fire and heat and everything else. You know, stir-fried rice is a good example of something quick. And so with big flavored ingredients and a different way of combining ingredients – you know, the food doesn't have to be complicated, but you end up with big flavor. So Tuesday night is, you know, stuff you can do an hour or half an hour, depending on the chapter, uh, pretty quickly, but you end up with big flavors. That's the concept. What are you aiming for? And when you say big flavors, what does that mean? Well, take Mastering the Art of French Cooking, right? I, I mean, I spent years cooking out of that book. Um, you'd be hard-pressed to find many spices in that book, right? <laughs> Very few herbs, you know, like a, a sprig of this. I, I just looked at a recipe from Iran you cook some beans for half an hour, add five cups of herbs, wow. and cook it for another hour and a half. So the rest of the world, I mean, uses cups of herbs. You know, yeah. Yotam Adolenghi, years ago, I saw one of his recipes that had like two cups of something. I was going like, this has to be two tablespoons. It's yeah. a mistake. It wasn't. So what I mean is the chilies, uh, you know, the spices, uh, the herbs, the fermented sauces, uh, et cetera, chilies, yeah, all that stuff, uh, you end up with big flavors. You know, lemongrass has big flavor. Ginger has big flavor. Scallions have big flavor. Soy sauce has big flavor. So if you just look at what the world uses as ingredients, they don't slowly develop flavor. They, they start with flavor. And when you start with flavor, it's pretty easy to end with flavor. And so I don't want to diss the Northeast or New England, but oh, I, go ahead. <laughs> back in the day when I was sort of in this uh, quasi-Scandinavian uh, cult and, um, and living in the Berkshire Mountains and, uh, and traveling through, through Connecticut and the Northeast, I remember we stayed with families to do our fundraising for this project, and I think I was in Noank, Connecticut. And um, I said to the woman of the house, hey, I'd like to do some cooking for our group. Uh, where did you put your garlic? And she said, oh, we do not cook with garlic in this house. Why do you think it is that some cultures have very little seasoning and others not so much? Well, first of all, it's what's available. Yeah. Now, you know, Istanbul was on the spice route, so they had you know, almost 100 spices. Northern Europe had access to very few. Well, actually, the medieval times, it's a good question. Medieval times, there are a lot of spices in, in European cooking, right? And then all of a sudden, the spices became cheaper and more available. And for whatever reason, Northern Europe really started with simple, fresh ingredients, root, root vegetables, meats, dairy, et cetera. And then 
uh, didn't use spices anymore. Uh, and it, one theory was uh, was that the aristocracy, the rich people, decided, well, spices are too commonplace now. We're just going to go to really you know expensive local ingredients. So they were the original farm-to-table people, right? Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, that's just not part of the repertoire. And so other places in the world, uh, you know, Thailand, for example, I mean, you know, papaya salad is pretty spicy and they love that mix of flavors. Europe is about melting pot cuisine. And if you think about beef bourguignon, it's a umami bomb, mm-hmm. right? I mean, four or five pounds of meat, not a pound. Saute the meat in batches, which creates more, you know, Maillard reaction with umami. Then you reduce the wine. Then you have tomato paste. Then you have this and the other thing. And you end up with everything tastes like meat. Chicken soup in America, <laughs> everything tastes like chicken. If you look at chicken soup in Somalia, they'd have a couple of hot sauces. They'd have some fresh cabbage or radish on the top. You know, there'd be a lot of layering of flavor. So I can't answer your question why European cooking. Everything tastes the same. There's very little contrast. There's very little textual difference. There's very little layers of flavor. And, and that's really the way most of the rest of the world thinks about food. I mean, the Middle East is all about contrast and, yeah. and, and layers of flavor. I mean, we, we were in uh, Beirut recently, and um, even the simplest thing, simplest salad, you know, w- would have lots. You put it in your mouth, you go, I got to really think about this because there's a lot going on. Uh, whereas in Paris, the you know, the food's great, but it, things tend to have a flavor, not many flavors. So you're writing for, in here, a largely English-speaking audience. Um, But I think, and uh, you know, in my case, they're ready for these bigger flavors, uh, whether it's because we've all been eating so much Flamin' Hot Cheetos or we've just been eating foods from other parts of the world. What are some of your favorite international ways of boosting that flavor? What are some ingredients that people should say, okay, it's not necessarily going to be at my local 7-Eleven, but I should seek these out? Well, I should back up and say most of the recipes in, in Milk Street or Tuesday nights are not full of hard-to-find ingredients. I mean, gochujang we use occasionally, but and you can get it you know, in many supermarkets, but we're not going to – most recipes you can find this stuff. So number one, spices. You know, my mother, first of all, had spices she purchased, I think, when Truman was still president, <laughs> probably right after the Second World War. Uh, and she had, you know – Cinnamon, allspice, you know, a few things. So just having maybe six more spices in your spice drawer would be really helpful. Uh, Having whole cumin or whole coriander rather than ground is helpful because if you just toast those whole spices in a skillet for a couple of minutes till you can start to smell them and then grind them up or use them whole depending on the recipe, you get an immense flavor boost. Two, uh, there's something in Indian cooking called tarka. T-A-R-K-A. It just means heating some oil with some spice and infusing, let's say, Aleppo pepper, for example, or mustard seed or something, into the oil, and you drizzle the final soup or stew, whatever, with that flavored oil. That is a technique you can use in almost any recipe, and it's really terrific. So that's really great. I think having just a handful of uh, bottled sauces of some kind, you know, good soy sauce, fish sauce. People, people are nervous about fish sauce because it is essentially anchovies in a, you know, in a barrel. But the really good stuff, and, and there are layers of quality. Well, take a look at the one yeah. I, I just put in my daughter's fried rice this morning. It's yeah, Red Boat. Like well, you have yeah. Red Boat. Red Boat's great. I mean, but, the, you know, the first stuff at the bottom of the barrel, that first 
pressing, if you will. Mm. <clears throat> in, in many places in Asia, they'll use three different kinds of, of fish sauce. Stuff you use as a sort of condiment, stuff you use more as an ingredient, and stuff you might use in, in large quantity. So it's not fishy. It's just it's like using anchovies, a couple anchovies. And well, you don't taste anchovies. It just adds sort of a base ingredient. So that's mm. really helpful. At the same time, you don't want to spill it all over the floor. At the same time, <clears throat> it sounds like you have done that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. in my mom and grandma's pantry, and boy, were they mad at me. At least you could go home. Yeah. Uh, you didn't have to stick around. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and then there are other little, you know, things. I mean, if, for example, the great vinegars, you know, or, or different oils. The grapeseed oil and sunflower oil used in the Middle East, not olive oil. You, I don't know why we only hmm. use olive oil in this country, uh, because there are lots of other choices. Um, there's, there's a, there are wonderful vinegars out there, like calamansi, which is sour orange vinegar. Well, that you can find in Filipino stores, among other places. Yeah. And if you just use that, you know, in conjunction with other vinegar, you, you can make the world's best salad dressing, and all you did was just buy this thing. So, you know, a few spices, uh, a, a couple other things are helpful. I mean, we, you can make a stock with miso, red miso and tomato paste in five minutes in water. Uh, and it's much better than canned chicken stock or yeah. beef stock in the supermarket. Oh. So just a few things. Um, and, and again, uh, blooming spices and fat. You know, if you're going to cook your, your onions uh, in oil or butter, you know, add some of the spices to that and bloom the spices. So, so just getting the spice flavor to come out is just really helpful. And uh, the last thing is most places in the world, especially in the Middle East, uh, they use spice blends and every family has their own recipe. So yeah. they might have seven or eight spices. So my suggestion is you can look them up. We have them too. But uh, get a spice blend. Uh, either buy one, like sitar, which is the world's most useful blend, which mm-hmm. is sesame seeds. It's wild thyme is sitar, a little sumac in it. That goes on everything. Uh, or you can make your own. Uh, toast the whole thing. Can we talk about what that adds? So the, it's, it's mm-hmm. sort of herby at, at the same time with the sumac, it gets a little acid. <clears throat> sumac is a red berry that was used almost in place of lemon or citrus. It's sour. It's citrusy. Uh, it's often used uh, in moussaka, which is a chicken dish. It's you, you can just put it on eggs. People in the Middle mm-hmm. East just will sprinkle some on eggs. It has this wonderful, it's a deep red color. It's citrusy, it's, but it's also sour. Mm-hmm. And, and that's another thing. You know, in American, quote-unquote, American cooking, traditionally, the idea of bitter mm-hmm. is, and Southern cooking has a little bit, but bitter is not a, a flavor. Sour yeah, the, you know, yes, there's some German, you know, <laughs> things that are sour, but basically sour, bitter, and, and combining different things, using sweet as part of savory, which most cultures do around the world, is not American. Americans hold off to the end, uh, really, to, to have sweets. Uh, and so adding a little sweet all the time it, with the sour, with the bitter, is just a great way of thinking about it. A charring, you know, for example, charring your vegetables, mm-hmm. like Brussels sprouts. Well, that sweetens them up a little bit and also gives you a little bitterness in the char. Uh, and that's the, the subtleties of things that aren't hard to do. All right. So what is your hope uh, in terms of how people use this? Because you've got this wonderful, you know, fast, faster, fastest, easy additions, and it's color-coded on the edges. What's, what's a reader's guide on how to use this? My hope, big picture, is, (laughs) he said modestly, is to change how people cook. And so it's not so much how you use this particular book or which recipes. It's that you start incorporating some of these recipes into your go-to repertoire. So you you start thinking about, oh, you know, I'll make some rice. Like a lot of cultures, the first thing you do is make rice or you have leftovers. And then you put stuff on it. 
well, that is a concept. Or you take lentils, you know, like red lentils, you can make a soup in 30 minutes. Well, that's sort of a go-to recipe. Or, you know, the basic braise. Here's a simple Iranian-style braise, and there's four or five components. You put it together and cook it fairly easily. Or it's a stir-fry, or it's this, or it's that. Uh, but all of a sudden, you start thinking, okay, th- these are things that are part of how I cook now. And instead of the old repertoire, you have the new repertoire. So I think we're trying to uh, suck people in to a new way of thinking about cooking. And the notion that, I mean, I think when I started cooking in the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, there was the, the Indian cookbook. <laughs> right. The, there, and then there was the, you know, there was the uh, Moroccan cookbook. Yeah. And a lot of time life, too. And there was the Diane Kennedy Mexican cookbook. And then there was the Chinese cookbook. And so these were primarily pretty complicated recipes uh, that were either restaurant-inspired or sort of Saturday night-inspired. That's not a good representation, A, because India has, you know, a hundred different cuisines. And two, the average person doesn't cook like that. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to say is, look, you know... If you go to Thailand and, 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 and take a walk and cook, well, it's going to take you 10 minutes in almost anything you cook. You know, it's going to be quick. So it's quick, it's simple. And that's what we want you to think about is the world's full of quick, simple recipes. So taking these hints from international cuisine and making them accessible to the average home cook today. Yeah. Ultimately, what, it, what we'd like to do is to get rid of the distinction between our food and their food, yeah. which I think is, is silly, and it's kind of an old-fashioned notion. I think today, if you look at fashion, if you look at photography, if you look at music, that distinction has kind of gone by the wayside. Uh, we were just in Oaxaca. I can think of 10 recipes out of there which would be perfectly well-suited to how I cook on a Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. Take a big tortilla, fill it with some... Black bean paste, some of the Oaxacan cheese, which is like a salty mozzarella. You can put some chicken in it, whatever you want. Uh, fold it in half and toast it on either side. It, it's basically kind of a fancy quesadilla. Okay, well, that's not their food. I mean, it is, but now it could be everybody's food. Yeah. So I, I, I like the idea that if, if you're in a kitchen anywhere in the world, you're just in a kitchen. You know, everyone's cooking, and so it, it's not us versus them, which is what it used to be. You know, it's like we have our stuff, but... Once in a while, once a month, we'll have a gourmet cooking night. You yeah. know? Well, no, that's, that's nonsense. I mean, it, it's all going to get flopped together, and there's going to be a mashup. And everyone knows Mexican food's not Taco Bell. Yeah. Everyone gets that there's more to it. You know, you can go out and get uh, Tibetan food now. You know, I mean, and people are much more sophisticated. I like to say it's food without borders. The food's just going to be all over the place, and it's going to be a ma- mashup. That's what's always happened in food. People talk about authenticity. Really? I mean, you can go to any place in the Middle East and, and get tabbouleh or get kebabs or get whatever. And you know what? Every, every country is going to be different. Every city and every country, every village in every country, and every household in every village, mm-hmm. they're all going to do it differently. And so there is nothing authentic anymore. Food always changes. If you talk about Mexican food, well, there's Spanish influence, the Aztec influence, there was the uh, you know Zapotec influence. 20 miles outside of Oaxaca, and they will cook a mole totally differently than they do in Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. And so everyone goes, well, mole is Mexican. Well, it, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. like 50 variations on it. It depends where you are. There's no one way to do it. Oaxaca itself has nine official moles. I remember I used to go to lunch with the former mayor who was the council general here, and he said, have I told you about the nine? I'm like, yeah, you have every time we have lunch. Okay, I I know cookbook authors hate to do this, but can you single out a few recipes that people should make as soon as they get the book? 
Uh, the Turkish red lentil soup is sort of my go-to. Uh, you take red lentils, which are actually orange for some strange reason, and you cook them in about half an hour, and that's where you use the Aleppo pepper and the oil to drizzle on the top. It's really simple to do. Uh, it's got a handful of ingredients, and it just sort of exemplifies the notion of taking simple ingredients and, and adding a layer of flavor to it. There's the spaghetti a limon, you know, which is, again, you, you take garlic and a little butter and a, a little bit of white wine and cook it down. But the notion is at the end, you finish it off with lemon zest and lemon juice and, and some parsley. But the point is that you undercook the pasta, you finish cooking it in the sauce. And so that's just sort of a classic Italian technique, which I thought Italy had been done to death. There was nothing new. Mm-hmm. Well, no. I mean, actually, we were there. We learned how to make pesto the right way, totally different. We learned how to make polenta without stirring it the right way. And these pasta dishes are all about not too much sauce, right? You undercook the pasta. use the pasta cooking water as part of the sauce because it's got starch in it. It binds the sauce. So something as simple as that has a, has a lesson. And then at the end, they're bright, fresh flavors. If I'd say a... A great technique is if you think about recipes at the beginning and the end, the end is where you add a lot of bright, fresh flavor, mm-hmm. right? You can add ginger, you can add garlic, you can add citrus, you can add fresh herbs. And so that's not something we actually do in America very much. Yeah. We, we, we put a sprig of parsley on it. Yeah. But you don't put a handful of parsley in. Or, you know, maybe I, I love pomegranate molasses, an ingredient I thought I would never use. Uh, but it's just essentially made, you know, it's boiled down pomegranate juice. Um, if you put a tablespoon of that in a stew, for example, no one's going to know it's there. But just at the end, you get that sweet, sour thing. And it's just all of a sudden, it's just a little trick where you get this amazing additional flavor. So it, what you do before you serve it, uh, including checking the salt level, please, um, yeah. makes a little difference. That was celebrity chef Christopher Kimball of America's Test Kitchen fame speaking with WBEZ's Monica Eng. You can find more chats about food from Monica Eng on the Chewing Podcast at chewing.xyz. Coming up after the break, we continue our series on science and colonialism and talk about the space race and the Cold War. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. This week, we bring you a series on the intersection of science and power politics. The 60s were synonymous with scientific advancement and the space race. But when you ask the scientists involved, their search wasn't in the name of geopolitics. It was for science. And science, the line went, was freedom. A new book by historian Audra Wolf examines the underlying social ideologies of the space race and how those biases still exist today. Wolf's book is Freedom's Laboratory, The Cold War Struggle for the Soul of Science. She spoke with Worldview's Julian Haida. I think a lot of people think of science as just a standalone thing, that it is objective truth in its own right, and the scientists are kind of just uncovering it. Is science that or is it about people 
at its core? Is it about the people as much as it is about the data? Well, people are the ones who actually do the science. And so it's really impossible to take the, the people out of that system. So if we think about science as being uh, not only the, the facts and sort of things that we uncover in the laboratory, but also uh, the people who are doing it, the institutions, the organizations that are paying for it, um, even kind of what goes into the equipment, credentialing, expertise, all of these things are part of what we talk about as science. And when you think about it that way, it's really impossible to separate science or scientists from the context in which they operate. In the book, you write about how beginning in the 40s, uh, the U.S. really tried to kind of separate the government and these institutions doing the credentialing or, or at least the appearance of, 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 a, of separation. Can you tell us about why this kind of apparent separation, you call it an ideology, happened? Right. Well, it's important to understand that the United States saw the conflict with the Soviet Union as an ideological conflict, a conflict between communism and what the United States saw as freedom. Um, and so – this really covered most areas of American life, including science. Scientists were very much part of, the, of thinking about uh, Americans as, as not being controlled by the government, um, as operating on their own free will, as being kind of uniquely separate from politics in this way. Now, the irony of all of this is that during the Cold War, American scientists actually had a closer relationship to the government than probably any other time in American history. Uh, when we look at the amount of military funding, uh, particularly in physics or certain areas of electronics, this language of science being separate from the government um, it was highly aspirational. This was a, a way that, that Americans might want their science to be, but it didn't necessarily reflect um, how science was being carried out. So, so you describe like these two channels, one being this ideology where America is a free country, everything that is the opposite of the Soviet Union. And on the other hand, you have science being used as um, to, to further kind of state policy and, and, and our foreign policy interests, particularly before, during, and after the space race, correct? Yes, absolutely. So during this time period, especially from around 1947 until the late 1960s or so, scientists' interests really overlapped with the government's interest in terms of thinking about what science could be. Both of these groups stood to benefit from thinking about science in the United States as a system that was uniquely objective, uniquely empirical, uniquely separated from politics, and uniquely international. And one of one of the institutions that was involved here was the National Academy of Science. And a, and a lot of educational institutions were kind of involved in this. But per, you, you cite the National Academy for Science, which predates this era by a century as kind of becoming non-governmental, governmental kind of uh, yeah. way of, of making that separation necessary to the ideology apparent. Yes. Yeah, so the National Academies of Science was uh, – it has a congressional charter, but it's, it's a private institution. It selects its own members. Now, one of the things that's important to understand about the way that the United States was carrying out a lot of its ideological programs was that it, it frequently relied on third parties. In part, this was to provide plausible deniability. Um, it was also uh, straightforward and, and, and less expensive, uh, but particularly in areas of science where the message was so specifically that the government didn't interfere with science. You know, it's really hard to um, do an acknowledged diplomatic program if the message is that the government doesn't have anything to do with the program. So the National Academies became a, basically a contractor for most of the United States government's um, international scientific activities for most of the 1950s. 
It seems like one of the issues that presented itself was that the 50s and 60s were a time where there were a lot of client states, countries popping up that the U.S. didn't necessarily recognize, academic conferences being the place where things were presented, and, and it became an issue when an academic or a scientist from the United States was seen on stage next to somebody from, say, uh, East Germany, correct? Absolutely. The United States sort of put itself into a bit of a bind by the late 1950s. Um, At that point, the United States did not recognize uh, the governments of North Korea, East Germany, or the People's Republic of of China. And it was around the same time that these countries uh, really made an effort to start participating in international meetings. Um, And so then the United States faced a choice. It could try to block those countries from participating in international meetings. But of course, that went against the rhetoric that the United States had been embracing, that the United States was uniquely supportive of open science. and Science and freedom are intimately Right, that science has no borders, that science has no politics. So that blocking these countries from participating was pretty much off the table. So the next option would be to stop sending American scientists to these meetings. But that wouldn't work either, um, not only because of the openness, but part of why the United States was encouraging international meetings uh, was because it's actually a really great way to collect intelligence, too. So the United States needed to find a way to square that circle, and it did it working through organizations like the National Academy. So the United States basically stopped sending official delegates to international scientific meetings um, and really handed that over to the National Academies. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Julian Haida, and I'm talking with Audra Wolf. She's the author of Freedom's Laboratory, The Cold War Struggle for the Soul of Science. You mentioned intelligence gathering. The CIA was involved in a lot of this uh, on the government side. What role did they have in these kinds of scientific meetings? Right. Well, so the CIA is involved with science as cultural diplomacy on two different levels. Uh, One is simply for intelligence collection, that the United States was encouraging these ideas about scientific freedom and uh, scientific internationalism at just the same period in the late 1940s that the United States was trying to establish a, a peacetime intelligence agency for the first time. So this was the idea that the best way to collect scientific intelligence uh, was to encourage scientists to mingle on the international stage. So that was uh, the way that we might expect the CIA to be involved with this. But the CIA was involved in a second way, and that was as a sponsor of what we call uh, covert cultural diplomacy. So some of the programs meant to promote the American way of life were uh, sponsored overt by overt government agencies like the U.S. Information Agency or the State Department. But other programs were actually uh, backed by the CIA uh, through elaborate funding channels with private organizations. And this was in large part because a lot of these organizations that they were funding involved people who were former communists. And at that point in the 1950s, uh, Congress simply would not tolerate that. Uh, But the CIA didn't have to report what it was doing to Congress. The CIA basically gets money and and does with it what it wants. Uh, So the CIA was operating uh, a whole slew of cultural programs, many of which involved intellectuals, but some of which involved ideas about science and freedom as well. It's funny you mention the role of ex-communists in in this because I think a lot of people think of ex-Nazis doing uh, the kind of scientific grunt work for the U.S. government. But did that ever become a similar kind of issue in the U.S. uh, at the time? It was sort of a different group of people. Um, 
Among American leftists in the 1920s and 1930s, many of them spent a certain amount of time in the Soviet Union, uh, particularly a geneticist I talk about in the book by the name of H.J. Muller, um, spent really quite a lot of time in the Soviet Union. But what this meant was that they had a, a much better understanding of what was going wrong in Stalin's Soviet Union than other international communists who maybe admired the Soviet Union from afar but didn't want to believe what they were hearing about Stalin's purges. So there was a group of people who became known as the non-communist left, uh, mostly anti-Stalinist, who often still believed in some version of socialism but not as Stalin was conducting it. And many of these people became very deeply involved in anti-communist campaigns and propaganda campaigns in the, 19, in the 1950s. Some of them, like a man named Arthur Kessler, had actually been deeply involved in doing communist propaganda in the 1930s. They were brilliant propagandists in some point. They knew how to do it. They knew how to set up fronts. Um, and, and, they they had, had, and they had the... the, the the plausible deniability. They, they had plausible of deniability. Science being a political. Absolutely, and they had genuine experience about how you set up and run a front um, that turned out to be uh, fairly useful information in the 1950s in, in a in an era of propaganda and psychological warfare. Now, there's this guy in the Soviet Union at the time that a lot of Americans were really kind of apprehensive of, and his name was Trofim Lysenko. Can you tell us a little bit about him and why so many of these American, I don't know if it's fair to say necessarily McCarthyites, but uh, a lot of American scientists were just really apprehensive of this guy's ideas that were just apparently scientific, but but there was more to it. Can you explain? Right. Trofim Lysenko was a Ukrainian agronomist, and he had some fairly unorthodox ideas about inheritance. He specifically endorsed the idea of what he called vernalization of wheat, that you could change inheritance patterns in wheat and increase your production by exposing the seeds to cold. And he renounced uh, what he called Western genetics, or Mendelism or Morganism after an American geneticist named Thomas Morgan. And this kind of got tied up with Stalin's purges in the 1930s. And so a certain number of geneticists were arrested. Um, some were, you know, they were put in prison. Some died in prison. A couple appear to have been shot. And then in the late 1940s, the Communist Party actively endorsed Lysenko's theories. So Lysenko's theories of genetics became the official party line um, for how science was going to work in the Soviet Union. And given that this was an era of propaganda for American scientists, particularly American scientists who had become disenchanted with the Soviet Union, um, it became all too easy to assume that this was the inevitable path that science would take under communism, that science would be controlled by the state. There would be a party line. Anybody who disagreed might get arrested or shot. You mentioned genetics as a science that was kind of at the at the forefront of this, and I feel like a generation earlier, there was a, a, a broad conversation about um, eugenics and kind of racial policies in Europe and in the United States. One of the things that you note is that the Soviet Union, as American scientists were saying, we are a free country, uh, would point to phenomenon of phenomena of segregation and things like that was was there uh, like a racial element to the way that science played out like a subtext to it well some of the same characters were involved in eugenics and these anti-lysenkoist campaigns uh, the, this geneticist H.J. Muller uh, was a fairly outspoken eugenicist um, although fairly unusual in his eugenicist politics Muller's versions of eugenics wasn't necessarily racist or classist but it was 
absolutely ableist. It, this was absolutely a theory based on human perfectibility. Um, and in the Soviet Union, uh, when Lysenko was criticizing uh, genetics in the West, he would say, look, these ideas about um, straightforward inheritance, that's one of the things that drove Nazi eugenics. Uh, and Muller and his colleagues would say, no, 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 that's, that's a misunderstanding of how you would do uh, eugenics. But fairly consistently, the American scientists who had come out of that background really found it difficult to distinguish between um, ideas of, of, of goodness, kind of fitness, that they would see as sort of objective rankings of human behavior from different ideas about what it might mean to value all sorts of people. So the Cold War is apparently over. What does that what does that leave the American scientific plane looking like? And is it still tied up with these problematic kind of ideologies that that have to do with just being opposite of what one's opponent? A lot of this language about um, science and freedom or that science should be separate from politics, um, it's really become baked into American scientific institutions because so many of them were either created during the Cold War, like the National Science Foundation, or they grew tremendously like the National Academies of Sciences did. So this language really became part and parcel of how so many American scientists saw themselves. And, you know, during the Cold War, this language of science and freedom, it resonated. It resonated with the public. It resonated with politicians. It even resonated to a certain extent with international audiences. But the Cold War has been over for almost 30 years now, and American scientists have yet to find a new language to talk about their politics, to talk about what's good for science, but more importantly, to talk about what's good for the world. And if scientists want to um, operate freely, if they want to have funding for their work, they need to be able to demonstrate that they're interested in the common good. And unfortunately, you know, fighting communism is not the most pressing concern right now. We have bigger concerns, whether that's uh, climate change or fighting white nationalism. And scientists need to find a language that shows that they can participate in those fights as well. Audra Wolf is the author of Freedom's Laboratory, The Cold War Struggle for the Soul of Science. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll have more in our Science and Colonialism series with Julian Haida. I'll also be talking tomorrow with the key participants in the Wild Things Conference. If you love nature and you love plants and animals and getting out there, you want to know about the Wild Things Conference. It's coming February 23rd to the Donald Stevens Arena in Rosemont. And I'll be talking with some of the key participants, including Stephen Packard, a conservationist who's been rallying people to restore our forest preserves here, and the keynote speaker, author Gary Naban, who is going to get people fired up about nature, food, and justice at the Wild Things Conference. I uh, hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Char Dastin. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.